clap on my end. <laughs> I think mine too, but I was holding my phone in my hand and I slapped my forearm and almost dropped my phone. <laughs> I was too lazy to sit down my phone. I was like, oh, I'll just slap my forearm real quick. <laughs> Damn near dropped my phone on a glass table. You heard a whole crash into the background. It'd be like a Tom and Jerry cartoon. What happened to you over there? Nah, let's keep going. Talk about don't, this, the don't worry about it. Stuff. Don't don't worry about it. Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so, so today's topic is component maintenance cost. Ooh. So this is a document by. Uh, it's called Best Practices for Component Maintenance Cost Management. Ooh. I, I feel like this is going to be a real gut check for a lot of people. <laughs> so. Uh, the introduction to this says, you know, what is components maintenance cost? Well, components maintenance costs uh, or CMC are a major issue for maintenance departments in airlines all over the world. Uh, and according to the airline maintenance cost executive summary for fiscal year, this is 2014. Uh, components make up the second largest portion or 24% of airlines direct maintenance costs. Yeah, I, I can I can believe that. Because, I mean, how, how are well, you going to get tell it everybody, I always tell everybody, I'm like, like hey, if you're going to, you know, like, I'm thinking about getting into avi- aviation, what should I do? I'm like, oh, get into the parts manufacturing business. If you can buy in on something like that, holy mm-hmm. cow. Yeah. Or or just any one of that, that whole chain of events from idea to installation, if you can do any of number of those, you'd be in it to win it. Like, real easy. Because... Like we just said, 24% of all maintenance cost is for the component themselves. And as we've all seen in our experiences, it doesn't fly. If you don't have the component, it's not flying. Right. And, I mean, I think we all run into this on a sad to say, but daily basis. Yes. At least it's that way for me, it feels like. Yes. Uh, especially when you have an airframe that's so old. And those parts, they're either not made anymore or they're being refurbished so many times. And it's like on its last leg for a, an overhaul. And you can kind of see it like that. Like, it's kind of shady. We should probably like either A, get new old stuff or get a whole new plane with at least a little bit more of a, what do you say? A time, a time span or a life cycle to it. Right. I mean, in many cases, you know, parts aren't made anymore and you're, you just got to hopefully you can find a, a refurbishment center who will take the parts, take them back to zero, zero hours, you know, and and you can continue flying it. But I mean, even that you can only do so many times. Right. And uh, continue on with this article is compared to the impact of CMC on overall maintenance spend, little effort has been made so far to standardize methods to break them down into subcategories suitable for benchmarks. Ooh, that's a pretty big gut check right there. So in, in, in best practices on how to deal with weaknesses in existing arrangements with suppliers and or original equipment manufacturers, i.e. the OEMs, um, so what's funny about that is we're I'm currently going through, um, you know, a corrective action for a similar situation um, that was you know issued out, but but unfortunately, you know, very limited on getting the product because it's a single source manufacturer, right? And that's for so many things in aviation. I mean, they're single source manufacturers, and if they're if there's 
multiple uh, platforms and and programs or companies utilizing that product will, you know, depending on the priority of your product, your, uh, your asset and how it falls in the ranking system, that's where, that's how fast you'll get it. Right. So that's been a big issue, but, but also adding the constraints of these COVID times. So Mm -hmm. these manufacturers are also minimize their manning at any one point in time, just to prevent, illness from spreading or whatever else. But so if you had 10 people making this product and now you got, you know, working seven days a week, but now you got five and they're working three days a week, obviously that's going to, to limit the production of whatever this part component product, you know, has material, whatever, the, whatever you're after. Um, it's just added constraints and, you know, you have to build uh, contingency stocks into your supply uh, most places have a contingency stock but you also have to account for you know you also have to look at factors like okay well what if we you know okay we built our contingency stock based off of our usage history well what if we added three more lines to chicago this year than we had last year which is now that that's pulling from our contingency but also back to that single source vendor and producer of parts components has whatever um, you know, you're, you're not able to backfill your contingency, right? So you start, you, you, you're, you've depleted your main supply. You've depleted your contingency. You're not able to backfill, right? You run into these, uh, issues that drive up your CMC. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I, it's funny you mentioned that because as you're, as I was, as you were talking about like, see, um, depleting your contingency stock and then using your history to determine what your contingency is, you know, like, you you brought up a very great example because like maybe your history um, for like a three year period was very bad. Like it was very slow for you. So like, okay, our contingency is let's make up a number 10% of our main stock, whatever. It's not realistic, but let's just throw a number. Mm-hmm. And then you all of a sudden, like your business starts booming and then you added three, uh, three extra lines to Chicago, Miami, wherever. And then now your, your usage history just like tripled. And you're, you're going to, like you said, you're going to burn through it all. Your contingency starts going to blast through. And then by the time you figure out the, the cost predictability of it, you've already overshot your, your usage goal by a whole lot. And then you're going to start leading to what a lot of us have now, where you have fleets that are down, you have aircraft that are waiting parts for how long already. And then you start playing, this bleeds into the cannibalization piece where like, we're going to take semi decent parts from old planes and then stick them into kind of sort of old, maybe just as old aircraft and just hope we don't break anything on the way out or on the way. Right. In. But even then that only buys you so much time until that part goes zero, zero time for maintenance. And then you're right back into the boat. Right. So that the, you know, the canning in that instance might only buy you depending on how, how many hours you're flying per month that might only buy you an extra month, two months, three months, whatever, you still got to figure out the issue of getting parts back in stock. Right. And and I think that's like an issue with a lot of newly minted uh, controllers and cost analysts and decision makers of that nature, is especially with co- uh, controllers or uh, some people call them pro super, uh, production superintendents or uh, production controllers, whatever. Whatever the terminology is, I think it's fairly universal. Like whenever a new guy comes and he's, and he sees like he has to fill a line, 
and and we don't have the parts in stock or it's going to be so long before we get it. They just think, okay, let's just kind of, let's just cannibalize it or let's remove it from one uh, shelf to another. And they do that enough times and they don't, they don't keep track or they don't keep accurate track of the, the flight time or the usage time. And then they ended up like doing a flight and they overshoot it by well beyond its deviation percentage. And then now like they're air quote illegally flying a, a part that's supposed to have been due like however many some flight hours ago. Yeah, exactly. Now here's another added aspect that, that could also drive up your, your tie, your uh, percentages for CMC. What if you're only allowed to have so many of a specific part on site, you're limited by, uh, airfield regulations, state regulations, federal regulations, um, you know, military regulations, uh, whatever the case is. So you're only allowed to have so many on site, but because of the nature of the part, it's got to be kept in a specific area and not allowed to be kept within your own supply warehouse. Yes. Oh, man. But, but you're not, you're also not the only, only dog in the fight that uses that, that product. Yes. Right. Oh. So, so that, that, that that area that holds those those parts or products um when they get an order in you know they're only allowed to have 25 let's say uh, of this component on site mm-hmm. and there's five different programs different platforms but use the same part right yep and it's it's like first come first serve or depending on the priority of your program if you're number four out of five number one and two and three are going to eat up all the stuff and then by the time you get around to needing it they're like sorry we're out Right. And we're waiting in like order more and we'll keep it over here. And you're like, yeah, I've had stuff on order for a long time. Like I was hoping you would have some left for me. And you're like, yeah, sorry about that. You're, you're not high enough priority. Yep. And I want to say like certain airlines experience the same thing. Like when I, I could be wrong about some of the logistics of this, but I noticed like, like, like you were saying, like there, you can only have so many of a certain part. In some cases it's, it's something pretty vital. Like say like uh, a GPS component or a engine or or a transmission a prop something very important, but you can only carry so much of it like for re- for reasons and you can't keep it in the same area as where your ser- your service units are, and then you're sharing this right. with like twenty five ten or fifteen so airlines and whoever puts the order in first is the one who gets it or whoever pays more to air quote reserve it has the priority and so like 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 run into an issue where like you have to replace an engine or an engine component which is seriously time tracked and it's very time sensitive for these things and it's you and airline airline x are trying to buy this so you gotta like almost outbid each other to see who gets the part first where it's the same overall goal where you're just trying to install something onto an engine and have it fly and make revenue Yes. So, uh, yeah, like you said, you said engines, I believe, and that is a big one. Like you, um, you can't keep, um, at least for where I'm at, we cannot keep, uh, replacement engines, uh, within the same operating realm as the vehicles themselves, right? They have to be kept in a separate building, right? Uh, whatever else. But again, we're not the only, only, only game, uh, in our area that utilize that. So, you know, we're, we're, 
hey, hey, we got to replace the motor because of X, Y, and Z reasons. Okay, well, um, we only have two motors left in stock, and one's actually due for a service bulletin, so we can't issue it out, and the other one's uh, awaiting a part that we canned off of it already. Mm-hmm. Crap, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, when's the service bulletin going to get done? Uh, the engine reps aren't going to be due to be on site till next week. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yep. Or, or uh, how about this? Like, so, so uh, on top of having the part on site or having a part relatively near you, then you also have to factor like transportation costs, right? Especially like for guys on uh, AOG or aircraft on ground. If, if uh, your plane is home based here, but it flew and it, ha- and it had to land somewhere else. And that place is like some like just basic runway, uh, very minimal traffic controlling and all that stuff. And all the parts and whatnot is at your home base and you have to truck that over to where the plane is. Now we're now we're talking extra cost upon cost, which can seriously drive up everything. Well, and actually, it's funny you bring that up. So it's actually cheaper, right? So let's say I'm in I'm in Van Nuys. And the plane go is out in Palm Springs, about a four hour drive. And you're like, okay, it's actually cheaper for me to stop by that that uh, vendor's warehouse and pick up parts and take it with me in route, rather than them. If especially if we kind of know what the issue is already, rather than me driving all the way out there going, yeah, it's it's this, and then having to place a part or an order. Now I'm waiting another hour for that that to be processed and then another hour for the driver to show up at the warehouse the courier service mm-hmm. and then paying that courier fee and waiting for them to drive all the way out there and drop that part off to you right so you just now add an additional six plus hours onto your onto your cost time um by using a courier service so many times it's actually faster so like in my case i would always like even if I was 100% sure, I'm like, well, it's this system and quick, quick look over the manual. The fault isolation tells me that here's the two cheapest things right out the gate. Let me mm-hmm. stop and pick those up and run with it. And if they're not, whenever I head back home, I'll just swing by and drop them off. No harm, no foul. Right. But at least I already have them with me in case that is the issue. Um, but yeah, you can, you, can, you can sort of save money on that aspect of it. That that's true. I never actually thought of that that way. Assuming that they have the part there and you're able to pick it up too, right? Or yeah, well, and again, that uh, back to you, like you said, back to the size of your your uh, operations uh, system, your part one, you know, your ninety one or whatever, um, whatever you're operating under. But if it's a bigger company with deeper pockets, obviously you're gonna have more parts on site versus your your uh, service your uh, company that only has maybe five aircraft total. You know, you're you're not going to be obviously keeping as much as as you would be if you had 400 aircraft. Very true, very true. Uh, uh, this is this is uh, going to components. I'm going to tangent a little bit. Uh, when it comes to the well, you got the cost of the components, and then you got the man hour cost to go with it, right? So, like, you have a component, you know for sure it's going to cost as much, but then you're also got to tack on like how much is going to take to put that in. Right, put that in, test it, verify good, and all that stuff. Uh, on a good on a good day, you probably have a, t- a minimal team, maybe one to three, sometimes four. But each of those, you're you're charging man hours to put that in and to test verify good. And I remember having this issue with a lot of operation managers or a lot of uh, uh, airline component cost analysts, where they say like, 
well, we want you to put this in, but we want it done fast. So stick more people on it. What? <laughs> well, excuse me? Like, oh, okay. I mean, but what are they going to do? Right? Like, right. The, so a two man job, like more hands in there are just going to get in the way. Right. Like what is he going to do? Run my tools for me? That That's a good uh, spend. <laughs> now, I mean, now that could also be time and cost savings. If you use them as your parts runner. Yes. So then, like, um, like using, for example, again, back in Van Nuys are working on the airfield and we had, uh, the, the parts, uh, warehouse for the one, one vendor was about 30 minutes to the East, about halfway between there and Burbank. Uh-huh. Uh, and then with traffic lights and all that, yeah, it took about took about thirty ish minutes just to get over there and another thirty or so back. So it's about an hour round trip. So if you got two guys who can stay working and one guy to start running parts and do paperwork, that's that's also can be a time saving factor in there. But again, that person's still charging to the job. So at the end of the day, what are you really saving? You'd really have to sit down and crunch those numbers. Right. And on a, in a per, in a good scenario like that, yes, like the money is worth the spend because you're gaining in time. But then how many jobs have you been on where there are just too many hands trying to fit into the jar? And I was just like, well, it's nice having you guys here, but it, it's not getting the job done any faster. Like if anything, you just you got the job done just slightly under the compl- the recommended completion time, which is kind of good. But now you you've just upcharged your cost by however many people extra you tacked onto the job. Like well, well, or like a lot of vendors will do, right? They'll let the two guys, the two, they'll they'll charge the full time for the two guys working to that um, work order. The guy running parts, they might only you know the maintenance uh, company might only uh, have them charge a quarter to half of their time at a reduced rate, and then they'll eat eat the rest of that payment for that guy out of their own pocket, out of the maintenance vendor's own pocket. So at least they're not taking a big hit on it, but they've reduced costs for the customer had to pay a little, little bit out of pocket. And then thus, you know, the airline, the, uh, the operation side is happy. And then you get a repeat, repeat customer, I guess is how you want to look at that. That that's true. You know, I'm glad you, uh, glad you brought that up because that, my whole thought process of it all was like, you just drove up your man hours just to replace a part, which typically only would have taken, I don't know, X amount of people, but then you tacked on so many more. And that's, that typically doesn't happen a lot. And it's usually, it's kind of understood already. Like this person is just going to be the parts runner, or this person is just going to be like the, the specialist for NDI or so, or something like that. And that's it. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know. I mean, that's true, too. If they're not there actually doing work, they're there for one specific portion of the job, which is the NDI component. You pull it all apart. They NDI it in the back of their rig. And then you're like, they give you the thumbs up of approval, hand you the paperwork. They leave and they only charge an hour or whatever it took. And then your parts back in your hand, you're reinstalling, reinstalling and reassembling. And then, you know, ops checking from there. So um, but I guess it'd be all job job dependent in that uh in that instance. Right. So we've used uh, the word component quite a bit. So I assume most of our listeners know, but just in case there's somebody listening that doesn't know uh, in aircraft maintenance, a component is defined as any self-contained part combination of parts, sub assemblies or units, which perform a distinctive function necessary to the operation of a system. 
uh, maintenance costs associated with this rotable or repairable part can be classified into the following categories. Um, at line replaceable unit level for the airline. So component maintenance costs can either be considered on-wing performance or off-wing support. Now, what is on-wing performance? Um, reliability, time on-wing, life limits, soft limits, predictability, modification, cost effectiveness, engineering and maintenance best practices. Now, off-wing support is repair cycle, repair, uh, overhead cost, uh, your TAT, uh, your fill rate, scrap rates. I'm not sure what NFF is, actually. I have to look that one up. Uh, rogue units and then obsolescence. Uh, then for your parts, parts management, availability, price escalations, and warranty. Ooh, that was, yeah. I think we've covered all aspects of that in our experiences. And I'm going to be honest, man, like the off way support is probably like the largest headache out of it, out of all of it. <laughs> like, I would think so too. Yeah. Especially like when it comes to like the, like the, like the scrap rates, the availability, the warranty even, or price escalation. Oh my God, man. Like I think I've had a way larger headache than that, than to actually like figure out how, like how this modified part, it's going to somehow fit into this version A side of the aircraft. Like I, I got a version B and I got to somehow make it fit into version A. I'm like, what the fuck do I do this? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking at this and trying to dumb it down for myself. Right. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> looking at the on wing performance. Um, it looks like stuff that you can almost control as a maintainer or um, maintenance group at the local level. Um, you can handle most of those issues. You're tracking most of those issues in your logbooks or whatever, but local to the hangar you're working in or the airfield you're working in. But the off-wing support is, hey, this p- component's you know, messed up. We got to pull it off. It's got to go back to the manufacturer for overhaul, repair, whatever the case is. So once it leaves your facility, your hangar essentially, for most maintainers, it's out of sight, out of mind. And it's in the support realms. Uh, um you know, hands at that point. And then for tracking purposes, as it makes its way through the shipping lanes and hitting all the wickets to go back to the vendor, then getting status updates on it while it's at vendor, um, any additional costs because they found additional damage and then tracking all the way back till it gets in the hangar's hand. So your pro soups at that point are typically trapping, tracking that all the way through. But um, so for a local maintainer, you know, you're, you're really only going to care when it's in your hands. Right. Oh, um, uh, uh, revisiting. Which you could use deficiency reporting, I guess, is for that off wing, right, as, as a tracking system. Right. Uh, going back to what you were saying about NFF or yet. So NFF is no fault found. So it means like you have a part that's bad, but you couldn't find out what the heck's causing it. Oh, yeah. Like we always say, CND cannot duplicate. Yes. And for, for like the guys on the line, AKA us, it's one of those, like, I have no idea what the fuck it is. It's not broken, but it's just, we can't figure out what the hell's wrong with it. So depending yeah, on what ha- only happens in flight. Well, I can't duplicate flight on the ground. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you know? Oh, dude, that reminds me of uh, like when certain air crew members will come in and say like, Hey, the, the weight on wheels switch doesn't work in the air. I'm like, no shit. <laughs> you don't say <laughs> yeah. yep. well, well, repeat that one more time like say it slower and then hear yourself weight on wheels does not work in the air 
is it clicking yet? Is it clicking yet? Like, right. oh, how are you going to have weight on the wheels in the? But you start reading some of the write ups, and you're going, "Hold on!" You read it like six times to yourself because you're like, "Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm yeah. reading it wrong." You know what I mean? <laughs> I have to be reading it wrong. There's no nobody would write this down. Not in all seriousness, right? Like, are you guys fucking me? Is this a prank? Like, is it is this somebody's birthday? So what's going on? <laughs> Wait a minute! It's July. It's nowhere near April first. <laughs> is, it, is this like a new trend is that what's going on is, it, yeah. is this a tiktok trend who's who's filming me right now where's that camera right ashley where you at hey you got me you got me you had me <laughs> oh, you, oh you guys are serious Ooh. well so but yeah like no fault founder could not duplicate in most cases right depending on what the part is it's kind of like like the nice way of saying like it's not broken like you you fucked up it's your it's an error on you just going to let that slide. But in most cases, when it's a major fault and you cannot figure out where the hell it's coming from or what's wrong with it, that's when you guys would, or that's when we would send it over to the vendor or whatever's the, the next higher level in the component chain. Like, we have no idea what the hell is wrong with it. Do whatever x-ray fine-tuning you got to do to figure out what the heck's wrong with it because we couldn't, we, on our level, we have I don't have the ability to do so. Well, and if you're lucky enough to have a back shop, you might be able to pull a component on the line, take it into the hangar, and somebody can bench test it for you real quick and give you a solid answer. But <clears throat> I think for, well, I've worked in very few environments where that was actually uh, a thing. That was mostly, you know, military has that option quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But for most AOG and, and other work, I mean, you're you're – always out in the field somewhere like six was saying earlier some podunk airfield and you know they barely got enough got they barely got uh, runway lights let alone any support you know right and when the runway lights is just like leftover christmas tree lights like thanks <laughs> thanks <laughs> there was a, no, i actually went to an airfield like that well it wasn't like an airfield it was more like a parking lot and a bunch of dudes were just like aviation enthusiasts and they just decided to turn that into a runway. Like, but, and so like, wait, how, how do you guys land at night? Like, yeah, man. What form do you fill out for that? Right. It's like, oh, we just turned on all our back, our porch lights. And that's the, the night landing light. Like, are you serious? <laughs> really? How's this legal? <laughs> man, they, were they all on like ultralights or legit aircraft? Uh, no, like the, uh, what's the smallest, like, uh, like prop aircraft. Uh, but it was one of those like real small like things like maybe like a one person plane if that mm. yeah like I can't a remember the plane dragger or something. yeah or like a little puddle hopper but it, it was real shady like there's no fucking way you guys are taking off like this right like you guys would totally get in trouble for this <laughs> yeah no kidding big big time big time trouble uh but yeah, so that's NFF on that's on the off wing support side. I'm sorry to back to tell you off like that, but I just it no, it, I, it clicked as, as soon as you were talking about time on wing and predictability. Well, and as you were talking, I was scrolling down through the article and then I found an effective fault identification by line mechanic is a prerequisite. Oh. Confirmed failure should be included, no fault found. NFF is a major issue causing high administrative burden. And wasted expenditure. So everyone, I could have just read a little further and answered my own question. <laughs> an, an effective fault identification? Oh my God. Probably- you know what though? I mean, people people kind of dog on that. And yeah, it's good to have good troubleshooting skills. 
um, which you'll develop over time. But a, a solid fault isolation manual is just there's no uh, no, no nothing else like it. I mean, it just sends you in the right direction, and you can typically get to where you need to be. Yes. And I think that kind of goes into like the interpretation of it too, because some individuals they overread certain things, right? That's kind of like when you have an individual who argues with you and they say, like, well, the publication didn't tell me not to do that. Like, yes, it did. <laughs> you know, or how about this? Um, you know, you get fault codes and it says like five NES. And so you go to your fault isolation manual. If it's not a well written fault isolation manual, you're like, oh, great, we have 10. Five NES fault identification. Christ. Let me read down through these and see what each one means. You know what I mean? And yeah. then you got to like try to puzzle it together and go on. Is that what happened in flight? Well, sort of, but not a hundred percent. What's the next one say? Did that one work? No. And you, it's ending. And then three hours go by and you're like, Hey, we finally figured it out, but what a waste of, what a waste of three hours, you know? Right. So like, it, or, or you get like those uh, fault isolations where they, it's like very drastic, shall must do okay uh actions like if you're popping this like you got to replace the transmission like say what now <laughs> right uh, and then yeah and then you kind of like yeah that can't be that's too that's too drastic and then it come and it's like this very fine print where it says like oh like check diode for con- continuity or some shit like i, I feel like this should have been step one not replace <laughs> transmission <laughs> now nav, yeah nav light out replace the inverter wait a minute <laughs> hold on i think there's a I think there's something else I could do before that. <laughs> right. right. Inver- inverter. Right. That, that's a pretty drastic step. <laughs> Maybe we should dial back. Can I just try the bulb first? <laughs> <laughs> Can we just backpedal a little bunch of times? So that reminds me, uh, we, whenever we do like night flights and a uh, air crew or a pilot would always say like, hey, my such and such uh, caution light is out. Like, and the, instead of being like, okay, let's like trace it back to see what's going on. Or see if it's just a burnt bulb or or some shit, or they pulled the breaker. They just say someone would just say like, "Well, did you spit on it?" Like, excuse me, <laughs> yeah, did you yeah. spit on it? Like, take the bulb out, spit on it, put it back in. Did it turn on? I'm like, yeah, like, oh, and then it, it's fine. I'm like, what? <laughs> That's the fig. Just spit on it. Like, how do you write that one up? <laughs> well, I've had somebody tell me like with an exciter box on an engine. I'm like, yeah, it's like intermittent starting. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're like, open the cow, take your hammer, take a soft mallet and smack the exciter box and see if it starts. Uh, I'm not, I'm not smacking that multi-thousand dollar part with a soft mallet. See if it starts like, well, if it's bad, you got to replace it anyways. And I'm like, I sure. But what if it's, what if it's something else? And I just made it bad. Just smack (laughs) it. Sure. You smack it and then starts up and like, all right, shut it down, start again. Then it, then it won't start. And you're like, Smack it again. So it's like, all right, it was obviously something loose internal to that. And you're like, I, I, I'm impressed with your knowledge of the system. You've obviously ran into this before, but just smack it with a hammer. That seems pretty <laughs> rudimentary, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. This is not like an any uh, Nintendo man where you just blow at it and it works again. <laughs> like, come on, but you know, what's funny is I've done that with, uh, uh, cannon plugs. I do it all the time. Like, oh yeah, we're getting this intermittent fault. Disconnect the cannon plugs, blow it out with some compressed air and not compressed air, but like air duster. Yep. Yep. Um, and then reseed it and then it works. And you're like, huh, that's all it took. Right. Yeah, have you tried right. turning it on and off again? <laughs> right. It, 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 
a lot of people will joke about it, but that actually works, right? Because that's the most violent time of a, any electrical component is when you turn it on, turn it off. And somewhere along those lines, when you engage power, release power, whatever diodes or relays or switches or whatever the heck that's in there resets itself and then it works again. I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> that's all it took. But then you have like a, some drastic measures, like some fault isolation or some mechanics interpretation of a fault isolation. Oh, just just smack it a couple times with a mallet or just replace the inverter. Like, say what now? Then you see like an inverter with like, or a, a exciter box with all sorts of dents on it. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I'm, I'm not <laughs> buying this off. But anybody in their right mind would say, oh, I smacked it with a hammer and it worked, so it'll go again. No, you're like, oh, I just proved that it's at fault. So now I'm going to replace it. I hope to God nobody out there would actually just let it go. Right. Or uh, I seen another one with like filter poppets. Like uh, like the filter pop, like, oh, I'll just pre- push it back in. I'm like, but it, <laughs> but the filter pop, it means it's clogged. I'm like, no, no, no. Just, yeah. just <laughs> pop it back in and let it fly. I'm like. If it pops again, then then you have something wrong. Like, but what if we're not here to catch it? I'll just pop it back in again. Like, are you fucking serious, man? <laughs> I feel like we're defeating the system here. Oh, big time. It's just those workarounds, air quotes, huh? Yeah. So I like to talk a little bit about uh, since we got into it with time on wing. Now, I'm not going to lie, when the first, the second I heard time on wing, I'm thinking like stuff you actually mount to the wing, right? Uh, like say for military applications, like a, like an external fuel pod or in the airline sense is the actual engine because it's air quote externally mounted to the, to the air or to the wing. But to clarify that um, time on wing doesn't necessarily mean it's on the wing. What it really means is it's in the aircraft, like it's installed where it's supposed to be. And the reason why this is important uh, between our experiences and what this article proves is a number of airlines and, and organizations use mean time between unscheduled removals and mean time between failures as their metric for like historical data. What's better is using time on wing or time since installation or time since new or time since last overhaul, I believe that's like your better metric for gauging like the overall performance and reliability of a part that's installed in the plane. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was just reading through some of that as well for the metrics side of mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And and some other places, you know, they'll, they'll track like what's it, uh, mean time between incidents or sometimes that's called failure. Same, same. Meantime yeah. between failure, meantime between incidents. Now, uh, you you probably speak better on incidents where it's not necessarily means like oh something de- destroyed itself. It just means like there was a air quote failure, and we just classify that as an incident. Yeah, or, like you could just be as simple as a generator failure, right? Right. Um, that just goes time between, you know, it adds to your time between incidents, but. One thing you have to do as well is, you know, if you've gone, been fortunate enough to go, you know, a long time between in, uh, incidents, you, you need to readjust your, your incidents because if you don't do that, if you don't do that, you risk um, 
you could get yourself to the point where you can be like, oh, I can I can tank three birds into the ground and I still haven't had a bad month per my metrics. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, I think that's the biggest thing about any metric or or a statistic is you really got to ensure that your your measuring device or your measuring algorithms are on point because uh, like you just alluded to, you can have like say a threshold that's so high and you can destroy or have half your fleet down for whatever reason, but you haven't crossed your threshold. So your mean time between incidents is fairly low. So if you, it's, it's kind of like a given that guys on the line can probably notice this right away when your mean time between incidents is still normal, but you can see outside that your fleet is like down three, like MVP just said, it's probably a good time to readjust and figure out like, okay, something here's not measuring right. Or somebody's not reporting this correctly to make them, the, the charts fit. Exactly. So, um, looking here at what, you know, kind of determines, uh, uh, time on wing. It says time on wing is also determined by the OEM vendor mandated life limits and operator introduced soft time. In some cases, airlines can extend life limits provided they have supporting data through either their own engineering team or external partner, uh, such as an MRO. Mm. Now life limits, that's like manufacturing meant that's, the manufacturer knows like this is the point of failure where this component would just totally trash itself. Or it's the limit between next uh, overhaul interval, right? Like you can only do it right. this much before you hit that interval. And then either A, it's going to destroy itself or it's going to risk uh, failure. Yeah, such as like every 200 hours, you got you to gotta change your engine oil. Or every 400 hours, change your engine oil. Every 200, you're doing a, a soap sample. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at, at 5,000 hours, you got to pull it off for a hot section or engine overhaul or whatever the case may be, as right. mandated by the, the engine manufacturers. Right. And these life limits, they exist for a reason, again, because of failure. Now, there is a little bit of a deviation to this where depending on what kind of component it is, depending on the manufacturer, depending on what it's doing, it can be anywhere between five to fifteen percent, and that's a lot depending on what the component is. Uh, example is like say like a transmission; it has a life limit of four hundred thousand hours. Example like this is I'm blowing these numbers up. I'm totally making this up, but let's let's pretend for a second. Like your total life limit for this transmission is four hundred thousand hours. Your ten percent deviation will be like forty thousand hours. And that's a lot if you consider that for a flight hour time. Like, but then you have some other components, like say an engine, you have, you have 200 hours before you perform uh, maintenance task X. And your 10%, that's us say example 10%, is only going to be 20, which is probably like another flight max. Right. But, you, but most flights, you know, you, you always want to build in like that extra 10% just in case it has to divert or it has to do, or it has to, uh, do an extended flight because air, airport X or runway X is closed for whatever reason. Yeah. Or you're down on the Gulf coast and a hurricane's rolling in and you got to get the bird out of the, out of that area just to, to be able to save it. But remember some of these life limits are imposed just due to, you know, the engineering or of the, of the, you know, engine manufacturers determined that these amount of hours, we've seen enough material degradation to, to learn that we've lost 
X percentage of performance from that motor. Right. Right. Um, especially when it comes to your hot sections, you know, I've, I've done some borescopes and some hot sections and, and seen, uh, pitted holes worn into the veins and stuff back there, you know, and it was still within its normal hours, but that air, that vehicle is operating also in a more sea, sea, uh, salty air environment. So you got to understand those two when you're looking at these parts, there might be one set of parts for operating in drier deserty climates, but then there's also going to be a separate set for if you're operating in separate maintenance intervals, if you're operating in a uh, saltwater environment. Right. And I think that bleeds into the soft limit or soft time limits uh, of this article. Like uh, the manufacturers have a hard down limit. Like this is your do not cross line. And, but like MVP said, like you could have other external factors or external pressures that are uh, working against that component. And so you as the line print mechanic or you as the quality assurance person or whoever your engineering team is, you can impose like earlier limits to this component. You can decrease your interval time between next maintenance due. You can increase your frequency of maintenance because of the environment or external factors that you're in. And that's really based on uh, what the what the aircraft itself is doing and where you're actually at. So that that'd be what a soft limit is. So like, yeah, and I know, like from my own personal experience, a lot of um, a lot of operators will try to use that soft limit time as much as they can, just so they maximize. Because right, everything comes down to the dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. But just to ma- maximize the time they have, uh, they can use that component before it's got to be pulled, and they're spending X amount of thousands of dollars for maintenance and overhaul. But remember, um, there are manufacturers, some manufacturers have limitations, right? Before you're approved to use that soft limit, you might have to do some sort of staying on engines, uh, power, power assurance check. Right. Right. So, so you say, hey, we want to we want to go into the 15 percent overfly on this. All right. We'll uh, do a power assurance check. Send us those numbers and we'll let you know if you're squared away. Yes. And and, uh, and so you have to do that. Yep. But that adds time on too. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, like, especially when you're considering implementing soft intervals, like you just said, you have to consider the operational constraints, the dis- the disruption impact of failures, and then whatever the manufacturer sa- says you have to do prior to enabling that soft limit. I, I would say that when an aircraft or a component, sorry, when a component is on wing or installed, your cost is relatively less compared to everything else. And the reason why is because when it's installed, it's doing what it's supposed to do. So your chances of incurring cost is minimal or lesser because it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's only when you incur a failure or you're hitting that interval time between next maintenance intervals, that's where you're going to drive up the cost. Or it's, uh, it's one of a conditional inspection that somehow dives into that component it's like it's not associated with the fault, but since it's it's in the way, you got to take it out. And now you just incurred an extra cost because now you got to do all those other operation checks and functional tests and all this other stuff to, mm-hmm. air quote, green up that aircraft. I mean, th- th- this article has a lot of very pertinent info. And um, does the average line mech use most of this? Yes, but it's more like a subconscious thing. Because that you're so used to just 
This is what it means to take this component out. This is what it means to put a component in. This is what it means when we have to do this inspection or or uh, we have to remove it for air code high time or life cycle time. It's already automatic. It's just now where it's translated to what it actually means through the whole chain of events. Like, especially us now that we're doing the off-wing support, we see all these numbers and, oh my fucking God, man, numbers. <laughs> and, yeah, so many numbers. And so like all these write-ups for whatever they're for, it adds up over time. And majority of the line mechs are not going to see this overtime trend, but this is where you get, this is where we have the decisions like, hey, you can only do this much or you can only receive this much or you can only do this many or you have to do this many intervals because reason X. And most line mechanics, well, they'll just say like, oh, fuck, here they go giving us more work or here we go having our hands tied again. Like, and it's not just to fuck with you because we've been there. We felt that like, are these just, are you guys just fucking with me? Like, is that what we're doing? But this is really all part of the part of the shuffle game to keep everything in sort of in line with each other. So we don't induce a failure or we're not overflying a failure. Right, exactly. And so, and part of that comes back to, to how to prevent that, right? It comes into the predictability aspect of it. So so what is the predictability? Predictive maintenance tools can help operators to cut costs and reduce downtime. Airlines can take better advantage of increasing amount of aircraft operational data available to support decisions and adjust maintenance planning. So, for example, several OEMs offer predictive maintenance tools. Airbus Time Health Monitoring, Boeing's Airplane Health Management, Honeywell's Predictive Trend Monitoring and Diagnostics, and Pratt & Whitney's Advanced Diagnostics and Engine Management. So with those tools, you can access, you know, aircraft, the data from the aircraft um, that helps also provide enhanced uh, fault forwarding, troubleshooting and historical maintenance information. Yes. So that also kind of kind of tells you like, hey, with with engine serial number, or whatever, it's had a history of smoke and hot sections sooner mm-hmm. than sooner than, you know, this other side. Or or another or one. Other serial I- number, I'm sorry. Yeah, another one I've seen that too is when you have like a lot number or a yeah, yeah, one, bad or, batch. Yeah, bad batch. Or it's a batch like where it's like, well, they, they changed vendors. So like your reliability is going to increase or decrease by so many percentage. So whatever your interval is, you got to increase or decrease because of that that change. And for the most part, you want to realize like, oh, whatever, it looks like a filter. It goes in or it looks like a, an engine component. It goes in. But she didn't take the time to realize like who manufactured it or if there was a uh, a notice that this batch uh, of serial numbers were better or less. And then you're thinking everything's gravy next. And you know, you overfly and induce a fault. Like, oh, God. <laughs> or the manufacturer, you know, when they build their components, whoever they use to build their specific component or the guts to their specific component, they might have switched up a vendor and you who who provides diodes at 15 cents cheaper a piece you know and next thing you know you weren't having uh air data system uh issues and now you can't seem to keep keep the aircraft up without coming down code three for an air air data issue right yes you know what i mean yep uh i will say though like uh doing a lot of this predictive maintenance you're gonna see a spike in no faults found for some time because if your system is not fully set up and you start implementing this, you're going to see a, a big spike in the very beginning because 
you're you're gonna have aircraft that are generally healthy, or for the most part are healthy. So you're gonna have a whole lot no fault found, no fault found, or could not duplicate gripe or time since new is still re- relatively close. So your 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 uh, trend is gonna be all out of whack for a little bit, but it'll slowly tail off, and you start getting the actual trend of what's going on. But that's pres- assuming that the data feeding into it is accurate, which gets it to the whole whip about your write-ups like yeah garbage uh, in garbage out type you, deal. yes like did you use the right uh fault code when you signed it off did you use the right repair code when you signed it off uh what did you actually do right and mm-hmm. I, I was joking to one of our listeners about this like say an engine run the write-up would just say perform engine run and then engine run complete okay for what <laughs> Well, well, what did you do the engine run for? Like, was it a wash? Was it uh, a function test? Did you replace something? What the fuck did you do? What drove what drove that maintenance? Yeah, and and that's it. Sounds very nitpicky, especially when you start getting to like who can smash your bag for it. Like, uh, I remember we had this talk with Frush uh, some some time ago, where the more room you give to interpret for someone to interpret, the less likely you are to get in trouble because. Uh, whatever manuals that, that is available, it doesn't specify. So you kind of just go along with it to make it as as understandable as possible. But if it, if it can be helped, that this keyword, if it can be helped, use the use the best and most accurate measures when you're signing these off. Because when all this gets fed into the loop of figure out where our problems are, you're just inducing a false positive or you're inducing a false negative and that throws everything out of whack. Very much, uh, very much true. So I was reading through here about a cost benefit and risk analysis are common methodologies to justifying a modification implementation. Um, now I'm just going to cut the modification implementation, but talking about the cost benefit and risk analysis, right? So mm-hmm. you and I have had that conversation, but that is something that uh, I am now kind of pushing forward within the program that I work is, is uh, risk or becoming risk-based and identifying a lot of these issues um, ahead of time, uh, getting them in front of a risk board, pushing them up to the appropriate channels to make the decision. I.e., do we spend the money or not? Right. Mm -hmm. What's the severity of, if I spend 5 million now, am I going to save 45 million down the road from down vehicles and whatever else right mm-hmm. so that's something for everyone to think about is is identifying risk within your own organization um you know it could be one of those hey if we don't if we don't get our maintenance manual updated we're going to continue in inducing um damage you know maintenance damage cost uh, of of 10 million dollars every time we do this job because the manuals are lacking data into uh, an unseasoned maintainer on that airframe, they're they're going to follow what the steps in the manual say, so they can't be held at fault. But they are going to damage this component each and every time. Mm-hmm. So, yep, things like that are something to keep a uh, keep an eye out for within your own own organization. Um, and and punch those up. You know, don't be afraid yep. to punch those up. Yep, and try to get action because at least at the end of the day, nobody can say, well, nobody told us. You know, nobody told us we had these issues. Yep. And and risk doesn't just mean damage. Uh risk could also mean like uh driving up costs. It could also mean uh 
affecting schedule because you know that on time performance is a big one too. So if it affects your schedule, if it affects your performance, if it affects cost, those are all part of your risk assessment. And anyone can do this really. Uh, how many line mechanics typically do this on the reg? Probably not many. But if you're a seasoned or you're looking to be seasoned and you're trying to actually make an impact for your shop, definitely dive, deep dive into risk assessment because that is what's going to separate you from the regular average Joe Mech who's just day in, day out, just turning wrenches to a person who's actually going to impact and make life whether easier or harder for everyone else in the future. Right. And, uh, and if I can add some, some, some things to think about as you're identifying and writing your risk, choose your wording, right? So saying like, Oh, you know, if, if we don't do this, then we're going to, then, then something bad will happen. Now you got to put up there. Then we run the risk of losing uh, missions, losing revenue flights, uh, whatever that gets the attention of the people higher up in the chain. And also if you can add a cost value to, even if it's a rough estimate, you, you can provide a cost value because Again, everybody who's going to be making those decisions, whether to we this is a legit risk and we need to throw money at it to get it resolved, um, they're not looking at what the actual issue is. They're looking at what it's going to cost. Yes. So always try to use verbiage where to gather gather their attention or catch their attention, and then uh, a dollar amount that they can use to uh, make their make their call off of. Right. I expect that's spot on. There's a whole math thing, and you, there's so many books about that and how you guys want to uh, go about it. But like MVP said, just choose your words carefully. Uh, try to tack it on a number or like a value number if you could. And then uh, like consequence versus likelihood, right? Like, oh, this is bad, big consequence, terrible. This will crash everything. But the likelihood of it happening is like next to none. So is it is it really a risk? Maybe, maybe not. But it well, could and be also put put date dates in there, right? Hey, if we don't get this done by this time, we're going to miss this mission. I.e., customer is going to be upset. We're gonna we're gonna lose money, contracts, whatever the case may be, because we're not reliable. Or if you've seen something that's already a problem, don't don't push it up as a risk, right? Push it up as an issue. It's it's happening now. We have a problem that we you. need to need to need to address. Yes, most definitely. All of it, like. I'm so glad you brought that up because that was in my head, and we, honestly, we somehow mind melded across the <laughs> across the sp- uh, time and space. <laughs> and yeah, most definitely, please. That that's probably like the biggest thing because what that does it adds value to both yourself. It gives safety to you guys and the shop. And then for all the bean counters up there, they can actually make decisions that that help. <laughs> it it sounds very cliche and oh, at a 10,000 foot level or operational versus executive level. But it, in the end, if like, if it's like what we, uh, MVP said earlier, garbage in garbage out, if you feed them falsified data or you feed them incomplete data, you're going to get incomplete results. And that's something we've seen way too many times on the line. It's something that we could wish we could just not deal with, do without. And if we could just get like a good, uh, fill in the gaps, That'd be freaking fantastic. And really risk assessment and cost analysis is probably one of the better means of bridging that gap. Yeah, I think it's one of the, uh, one of the ways many organizations, just even outside of aviation, um, most big corporations have some sort of uh, risk management program. Um, and it's just how you continue improving processes and everything else, right? 
nothing, mm-hmm. nothing lasts forever. And your processes for managing five customers no longer works when you have 10 or 15. So things need to be constantly uh, looked at and reviewed. And again, um, you know, people high in the chain making those decisions, they, they might not see some of the issues that are at the floor level, but mm-hmm. it's on them to make that decision. So that's where, that's where you as the maintainer has to come in and identify those. Cause if you think you, just because you see it doesn't mean they see it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so, so what's some of the best practices to enhance on wing performance, right? Uh, to, just based off this article and, and to kind of summarize some of the stuff we've been saying, uh, practice, concentrate on a good modification policy like try to adopt uh, a model which considers the economic environment and the business model of your airline or your program or your airfield whatever because if you're you're planning for this and the economy crashes or your economy ups and you're not ready for it then you're screwed (laughs) right Um, yeah you have to have a little foresight in there yep uh, choose wisely between running component on condition or using soft time and hard time limits. That's a big one. Uh, consider opportunity costs like AOG. Ooh, I think we kind of, yeah, it's a big one. We touched on that a couple of times this episode. Yep. Yep. Uh, optimize task intervals. If escalations are permitted, sometimes a de-escalation that goes into your threshold that goes into your deviation and your maintenance intervals or your inspection intervals. If it's, Something that you can uh, manage and something that you can control, by all means, please. Because, uh, go ahead. I was going to say one of the ones that stuck out to me here was be aware of commercial agreements and their vendor warranties, component pooling um, agreements, aircraft leasing contracts, right? So there's some positives and negatives in there when it says be aware. Vendor warranties, uh, if you got a part and, and, you install it and you get five flight hours out of it and it craps out. I think that falls under a warranty. So, so these companies will never reach out and say, Oh, you had a failed part. We'll send you a new one. No, it's going to be on you to know that there's that warranty there and to reach back to them and, and basically here, give us another part. You, you gave us a lemon here. Um, component pooling agreements that kind of what I talked about earlier when you have a location, but this, all these components have to be kept in one location that, five different programs pull the same part from something yep. else to be in mind. Right. You, you, sometimes you can't avoid it just impairing, depending on where you're operating, but um, definitely something to think about when you have a contingency, uh, when yep. you need to identify contingency stocks. Yep. Oh, and then leasing contracts. Um, you know, like, like we all know leasing can be good or bad depending on how you're viewing it. But um a lot of leasing contracts uh, will cover maintenance costs, right? You're just paying for the use of the vehicle. It's your air taxi. You're flying around. Something breaks. You're just like, ah, it broke. Uh, and they send their own people out to fix it. But could be the other way where they're like, hey, you pay for this. And then the fine print says, and if it breaks while you're out flying around in it, uh, it's on you to fix. Right. I, I think I've seen so many uh, examples of that both ways where like, there's a fine prey where it says you, you assume all risk and responsibility once you take the plane. So it's almost like a rental agreement, but it's more like it's high your risk, high yeah. stakes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like we're giving you the plane, but if you break it, you bought it. <laughs> do you want the extra insurance? Yeah, I think I do in this, in this case. <laughs> yes, most definitely pay the extra insurance. It's worth it. <laughs> right. It's just like a rental car. Like you're, you're not, 
hundred percent of what could go wrong. So you might want to throw the extra thirty dollars or however much it is to kind of cover yourself to a certain degree. Uh, insure touching ac- on yeah, go I was gonna say insure, touching on something we've already talked about, but ensuring accurate and maintainable reporting by line mechanics. Oh. Again, it's it's on you, the maintainer, to make sure the right information is getting input. Yep. Yep, most def. Uh, track cost effectiveness. I mean, that's a very big number crunch. If you guys want to get into that, by all means, that's a beast in itself. But it is like nerd you, stuff. It enlightens you so much, though. Just like, wow, I can't believe. Yeah, you look back at all your previous thinkings before that. And you're like, wow, I was really, really not being considerate of all these other factors. I'm so glad I looked into it. Assuming you want to try. Right. N- numbers and money drive everything. Yep. Uh, uh, track high, uh, no fault found components issue maintenance tips to avoid reoccurrences. Oh my God. <laughs> That's like one of the hugest ones. Like, like we were just talking about, like, oh, just, just a uh, rap at it or just a uh, slap it a couple of times with a mallet. Uh, so you also need to be consider that too. If you have repeat reoccurs, right? Your customer, there might be something you're not tracking. Um, you know, behind the scenes stuff, but customers often track repeat reoccur instances. Um, and so if you're not reporting that accurate data, um, you know, oftentimes uh, there's, there's award fee hits or money fee hits. Uh, you're, Hey, we, you know, you guys are maintaining this vehicle for us, but we've, this is the fifth time in a row we've had uh, a repeat recur, the same write-up type thing, but, but, you know, it could be the air crew miss misinterpreting what they're seeing you said no that wasn't the actual instance it was this so again it comes back to the accurate reporting right yeah okay yeah we've had the same issue we replaced the part three times and it hasn't fixed it and we've tried nothing else that one kind of falls on us but if it's the air crew and they're writing down the same thing every time because they're refusing to look any further into the flight manual just because they're being lazy you could also come back and say no 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 that's we're not taking any money loss from that that's that's on your side Yep. You guys have given us false information. It's taken us excess extra time to research and troubleshoot to figure out what is actually the problem. Yep. <laughs> I like how you said that because that's literally the next bullet. Like educate cockpit crew on specific items to better understand what affects components life on wing, e.g. heavy landing impacts on landing gear life, high speed taxi impact, uh, sharp steering angles on wheels, uh, writing up detailed defect information or non-detailed information like weight on wheel switch doesn't work in flight like <laughs> are you, you serious you, are you telling me that i need to you suggest that i tell a pilot recommendations on how they can be better why well, might as well go talk to the wall over here <laughs> <laughs> hey mr pilot i know i'm a mechanic here i'd just like to tell you some some things i think you can improve upon right to like, which they they give you that the old double guns and that and then they call you shooter or something like that as they wander into the pilot's lounge. I don't give it a shit. <laughs> right. Thanks for that sport. Uh, I'm a freaking uh, full send as I feel like it. Like, All right, man, go for it. I'm a pilot. Yeah. Right. Uh, don't come crying to me when you get a torque split. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, provide I, feedback to training departments in order for them to revise course content. Oh, oh my God. If that isn't an ongoing battle in my life. <laughs> Oh my God, <laughs> my chest. <laughs> I felt that. Yeah, I think I had a, a, a mini seizure right now. <laughs> Partial stroke. 
Right. Now trading, I mean, we could we could probably do a whole other episode on that on why trading is seriously lacking on a lot of things. But a lot of a good a good number of it is just the data that we're feeding them, right? Uh if we're not giving them accurate stuff, they're not gonna know no better. So here you go. Everything works as it should, but no the fuck it doesn't. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh in many instances your your training personnel aren't coming from the floor. They haven't spent any time working that vehicle or vehicles have no maintenance background. They read what's on a PowerPoint slide and thumbs up. You're trained, um, right. but they, they they know nothing about what's changed in the process and the vehicles and the materials, uh, in special tooling. So it's, it's, it's definitely, you got to get with them every so often. Say, Hey, we got to update this stuff. Um, which is is a very big thing of what I am going through right now. My own within my own program, yeah, it is a it is a never ending battle as of recently. <laughs> yep, right. Or like uh, yet some uh, trading resources that they're so they've had some time on the line, but it's been so long, right? Like they were used to you working on version A, and here you are on version X. Like you're you're a little bit behind the times, man. Like. Yeah, they were on the Vietnam era bird, and, and it was all analog uh, and and fly by cable, and now we're fly by wire, and everything's digital, right? Glass cockpits and whatever else are again behind the curve, like you said. Right. I I've seen like some uh, seven eighty seven demonstrations, and the aircraft is like it's almost smart enough to talk back to you, and some of them do. Well, not in the way like. We are like you would expect like an actual conversation, but they can tell you everything that's going on. They can tell you everything what's happening with it. So it makes like the the fall isolation that much easier. But again, like it's one of those like you gotta be smart enough to understand. Like it's it's almost too smart where like it starts talking uh like these big fancy words and you like, what the fuck is this thing trying to tell me? Right? Just mm. are you broke or are you not, man? Right. <laughs> <laughs> But definitely, like with especially with training, oh, training is like, uh, like what MVP said, it's an ongoing thing. But the more information you're able to feed them, the better equipped they will be to throw out stuff that's more up to date to to the field or whatever. Whatever the new mechanics actually hit the line, and that's gonna have to that's gonna kind of fall in its own predictability. Like, how do we train up this person to be ready three years later? For something that we think is going to happen three years later. Yep. Oh, and that comes back into your risk assessment too, right? Regarding the training. Yeah. You as the individual working the floor, you throw it out there. Hey, if we don't update uh, current training slides for whatever processes, uh, we're going to run the risk of uh, not getting the all personnel the correct data. And they're going to come out here and cause more more problems, more headaches. Oh, yes, absolutely. They're just going to drive up more costs, like we said. It's going to drive up your schedule, as we said. All all the wazoos that you don't want, and it's something that could have been completely avoided had someone done the cost analysis and the risk assessment from the get-go. But again, garbage in, garbage out, everybody. So, <laughs> And that's pretty much it. Yeah, man. I mean, we, we, <laughs> we hit a lot on that one. And I, I, yeah, we could probably do another episode, maybe and hit the off wing, off wing side of things. We just covered on wing really today. Yeah, we could definitely would. Uh, oh, we definitely should, especially with when it comes to off wing stuff. There's layers upon layers of that stuff. So, I mean, on wing stuff is pretty straightforward. Put it in, 
check it, track your intervals, and then overhaul it. And all the all the little nuances that come there. But with off wing stuff, oh my god, there's like there's so many layers to this stuff. And honestly, like for any line mechanic or any newbie that's coming on, if you learn the off wing stuff, you'll be scores ahead of everybody else. Because this is not stuff that you 100% have to know. But if you do know it, it just puts you leagues ahead of everyone else. It helps you uh, plan a little bit better, too. Because if you know the lead time for something's three months, you can, you can start building that into your maintenance schedule. Yep. Absolutely. And then or- start uh, spacing out certain things. So, okay, I know I got to take this one down. I baselined all my aircraft at this time. And then immediately I'm going to take one out of service to to overhaul whatever part. But I know it's a three-month lead time. So as soon as I get that component back, I drop the next one. And then I space all my birds out. Right. You know, three yep. months from there, three months apart. Absolutely. And that just makes everyone happy because now they have some form of predictability in their schedules. They have some consistency in their schedules. And they know when they have to plus up because a certain job is going to be coming due here in the next couple, however long. And it just it, it gives that sense like I know what I got going on. So it's not like a complete toss up. Like I, I should just cancel all my plans because I don't know what the hell's happening. Mm-hmm. So so that definitely plays into a lot. It goes into everyone's uh, schedule, goes into their consistency. It goes into like their mental health, especially because <laughs> <laughs> there's one there's one thing that like that I've learned over time is my schedule is is only so flexible. And uh, there, I've done those for too many times where I have to be fluid on times yep. when I don't want to. <laughs> yep. Uh, and lately, it's now like, nope. It's it's gonna there's gonna be some flex, but it's not gonna be fluid. So, come up with a better yeah. way of of predicting what the schedule's gonna be. <laughs> it flex till it snaps. <laughs> yes, and that's <laughs> and that's when you go into burnout and all that other stuff. See our previous episodes on those. <laughs> <laughs> Please see past episodes. Uh, final thoughts for anything else, MVP? No, I don't have really anything today. Um, you know, just just uh, try to get planning as much as you can. Uh, hit your risk up. Uh, if you need help with identifying uh, risks, um, you know, hit us up on the social medias, and I'll try to uh, assist as best as I can. Most def. Very well said. Like I said, we're... we're all about that listener engagement. If you guys have questions, you got stories, you got topics or whatnot, just shoot us a line either at our socials or on our website, in our emails, whatever the case may be. We are pretty good about getting back to you uh, relatively fast. Or if, it, if we don't, we at least say like, hey, we're looking into it. We'll get back to you once we figure it out. And with that said, thanks everybody for listening. All right. See you, everyone. We'd like to take this time to thank our patrons for supporting our show and allowing us to continue to make episodes, maintain our gear, and create merch for all of our listeners with special thanks to Erica Lamont, Chris Hawkins, Ryan Freshour, Dan Schubert, Jenny Dignan, and the ladies of the Dick Talk and Mimosas podcast. Thank you all so much for your support and patronage. Visit our shop at cancelformaintenance.com and grab some swag to show off both your support for us and your prowess as an aircraft technician. If you have ideas for the show or you'd like to be a guest on the show, visit our contact us section and send us a line. We will do what we can to get your ideas or yourself on the show. You can also follow us on social media such as on Facebook 
at Cancel for Maintenance. Instagram at Kanks, that's C-A-N-X for Maintenance Podcast. Or on Twitter at CXMX Podcast. Check out some of our affiliates like Rockwell Time, where they make both rugged and classy watches to fit your lifestyle. Use the code CX4MX and save 10% off your purchase. Support us on Patreon. Our patrons get exclusive perks such as access to our Discord, discounts and early access to merch, special patron-only episodes, and so much more. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.